Hello, everybody. My name is David Craig. I'm filling in for Leon today on Return to Reason. I'm excited to be chatting with lawyer Christopher Kinsinger. He's the National Director of the Running Meat Society, adjunct lecturer, and also a prolific legal columnist. He's got great thoughts on the constitutional health of Canada, the precedent-setting cases that's happened during COVID over the last few years, and also what you should know as a citizen of Canada. Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. Well, Christopher, it's so great to have you. Appreciate you joining us. I'm just uh, wanting to talk a lot about what's going on in our country, specifically in regards to our Constitution and and Canada. Just to jump right in, pre-COVID, so let's get back to before March or February of 2020. From my understanding and from what I was hearing, not many people talked about our charter. Not many people really were aware or wasn't a, a, a hot topic. Since then, fast forward through all of COVID, the two years of that, plus also you look at what was happening in uh, January and February of this year with mm-hmm. like Freedom Convoy that went to Ottawa. There's been a lot of, lot of chatter, hot topics regarding our freedoms and, and what the charter, how it protects them, how there might be, and so, some people might categorize as maybe some loopholes. But you mentioned in your National Post article that far too many Canadians hold super, a superficial understanding of their constitutional rights and freedoms. Can you bring some clarity to what you mean by that? Absolutely. And, and yeah, I think I would agree with your statement, David, that Pre-COVID, the charter wasn't necessarily front of mind for a lot of Canadians. Yeah. Certainly, those of us uh, in the legal profession or academy, uh, you know, if you, you might call us law nerds. We we definitely care about this uh, more than the average Canadian off the street. Uh, but at certain points in our history, the charter has uh, become more important to us. Uh, it's always important, but it, it becomes more front of mind, and we realize just how important the charter is and and the protections that it provides. How important that is as well. But when I was getting at my National Post piece is that I think there are really two dangers that we face when it comes to thinking about the Charter, and that's to think about the Charter in a superficial way. And we can do this in one of two ways, David. The first is when we are superficial about the rights and freedoms themselves, and we look to these rights and freedoms in a very absolutist sort of way. So we can look to something, for example, like freedom of expression and and hold to this absolutist conception of freedom of expression in which any limitations that are placed on that freedom we see as being inherently unreasonable. But of course, the other danger is to look at any limitation that is placed on those freedoms uh, in the name of, um, uh, in in the name of reasonable limits in a free and democratic society, which is the standard that is set by section one of the charter to look at those uh, in a way that itself is very superficial yeah. and, and to act as if any uh, limitation that is placed on those freedoms in the name of a free and democratic society is somehow itself reasonable. And really where we want to be is, is somewhere in the middle. And we need to recognize that in our tradition, and we've inherited much of our tradition uh, from the British tradition, in some ways more than the American tradition, we have rights and freedoms, yes, but we also have duties and responsibilities as well. And that's really what I think the heart of section one gets at. And so we need to get to this point where we don't take those freedoms for granted, where we uh, jealously and zealously guard them. But at the same time, we recognize that this is part of what what it means to live in a free and democratic society, that there are going to be times when those freedoms have to give way Uh, to other interests. It's interesting that you brought up the duties and responsibilities because 
I personally believe that that is a massive part that isn't talked about enough when it comes to our constitution is that if you have, as you mentioned, absolute freedom, the ideology of just absolute freedom with no parameters, which duty and responsibility, even just as human beings can offer mm -hmm. parameters to that freedom. You could argue that that pure freedom can lead to anarchy. If you're putting aside all of these freedoms and responsive uh, duties and responsibilities. hundred percent. We also, you mentioned that there seems to be a rot in our constitutional culture. Um, you alluded to it a little bit in what you're just mentioning, but can you expand upon that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think really when I'm talking about this rot, it is one of, of culture and it is one of, of how we understand what the charter is and the role that it plays uh, in our legal order and in our society. And so I think we saw this particularly, uh, you, you know, you talked about the Freedom Convoy in Ottawa this past February, that was something where that very much came to the fore, where we had people who were coming to Ottawa who frankly held very absolutist uh, conceptions of their freedom and acted as if any limitation on their freedom, again, was inherently unjustified. But then you also had those who were uh, responding to the concerns that were raised by participants in the convoy simply by reciting section one, as if that itself was the end of the discussion. And so the problem that we face when it comes to the charter is a cultural one, and we need to get to a culture that recognizes the importance, as you know, you were just discussing there, David, of responsibilities as well as rights and freedoms. And we can talk a lot about uh, the precise legal limitations and, and certainly uh, constitutional law is a notoriously tricky area of law. And so yeah. where we draw those boundaries is not always going to be uh, clear cut. But more than that, we, we can't have law without having a healthy underlying constitutional culture. And so I think a lot of this comes down to um, just lowering the temperature a little bit in some of these conversations to think about, uh, to recognize that there is room for reasonable disagreement, but also to think about uh, how we need to balance rights and freedoms with other uh, values and priorities in a free and democratic society. Let's chat a little bit about section one of our yeah. charter, because there seems to be uh, a lot of different interpretations from it. Um, I've got friends who are politicians that have used the terms. It can be used as a get out of jail free card. Um, we've got people as well that seem that, that think that our charter is written the same way that the U.S. Constitution is written. And there's obviously some very big differences. So Section 1 has been brought up a lot lately, meaning that we have our guaranteed rights and freedoms. But if there's reasonable justification to stop those for whatever certain reason, obviously I'm paraphrasing at this point, yes. that that can be executed. Can you talk a bit about how we define reasons to stop those rights and freedoms? How can we find balance in that? So it's not yeah. one extreme or the other. Essentially section one both activates the rights and freedoms guaranteed in the charter. So it says that the rights and freedoms that are set out in the charter are guaranteed yeah. But then it lays out the standard by which those rights and freedoms can be limited. And the standard is what we call demonstrable justification in a free and democratic society, yes. which is a bit of a mouthful. But what it essentially means, demonstrable means that the state bears the onus of proving on the basis of evidence that limitations on rights and freedoms are justified in a free and democratic society. Part of the problem, I think, and this goes back to the problem with our constitutional culture, is that when we talk about section one, we we there are some who certainly um, perhaps without intending to, but they do look at, to it as some sort of 
um, maybe not quite a get out of jail free card, but really giving the government a, a wide latitude uh, to place limitations on rights and freedoms. And, and certainly to an extent it does that. But but the issue there is that section one is more holistic than that. Mm-hmm. And it what it calls us to is to ask what is justifiable in a free and democratic society. So it, it's not just about saying, yes, if the state has a valid interest in, in placing limitations on these rights and freedoms, it can do so. It actually calls us to both think about the scope of the charter rights and freedoms themselves, and then the standard that we want to hold the government to when we're limiting those rights and freedoms. And so I, I think section one ought to set uh, a high bar for both claimants who, who go to court and who assert their charter rights and freedoms, but also the government when the government wants to place limitations on those. Um, one of the things though, David, that you'll often hear said about section one, and this again comes back to this, this idea of um, having a superficial understanding of section one, is that it, it essentially says that all rights and freedoms are subject to reasonable limits. But that's not actually what Section 1 said, and this is what my my friend Professor Bird says, is that if you look at the wording, what it says is that the rights and freedoms are guaranteed and are subject only to those limits that can be justified in a free and democratic society. Mm -hmm. But in theory, there are sections of the Charter which may never be subject to reasonable limits in a free and democratic society by their very nature. Now, these are the sections of the Charter that, thankfully, we don't often see claimed in court. Uh, Professor Bird specifically points to freedom of thought. I'm not sure how a government would actually limit freedom of thought. We would have to get into a very Orwellian situation yeah, there sure. uh, if it was going to do so. But let's say for you know for the sake of argument in this hypothetical world that it could, Professor Bird suggests that in no circumstances would it ever be uh, justified to, pr- to place a limit on freedom of thought. Of course, what we're mostly dealing with with charter uh, litigation and charter disputes are rights and freedoms where uh, it is reasonable in certain circumstances to place limitations on the exercise of those entitlements. And so the challenge that we face is knowing when the limitation is reasonable and when it's not. When you have, and obviously the situation everyone's familiar with regards to COVID, is that Mm -hmm. you've got something that started out in early 2020 that people are very unfamiliar with. We don't know Mm -hmm. what's going on. You hear reports from different countries and you have leaders who've frankly never dealt with anything like this. And and they're bound to make mistakes and they're doing their best to make judgment calls. Mm-hmm. Tough situation for anyone. But if you fast forward a year, a year and a half, as more data seems to come through and, and you start learning and understanding what's going on, is what is the process, whether someone agrees or disagrees with how different governments, whether provincials or federals, have acted? What's the process for proving or deciding whether it was justifiable? Because, and and just to expand a little bit, I think everyone would come to a consensus if we knew that five out of 10 people are actually passing away because of something like COVID. I think everyone could be on the same way. That's a reasonable justification to limit our freedoms for sure. for people. But when you have places that are far more gray in terms of what is, it's hard, you can't really draw a line as this is the threshold you have to cross. All that to say, yeah. what does that process look like and where does it end up with who makes that final decision, whether it was right or wrong? So there is a case from the 1980s called uh, the Queen and Oaks. And uh, this was the first major section one test that laid out this, where the Supreme Court of Canada laid out a framework for when 
Section 1 can be used and the standard by which it can be used. And so there are a number of questions that we ask. The first question is whether or not the law pursues a pressing and substantial objective. So what we're saying there is just at a base level, this has to be a legitimate uh, state goal that the government is pursuing. And in some cases, we might say that there are certain laws uh, that do not pursue valid objectives. Yeah. So I would say, for example, a law that that compelled or prohibited worship outright would never be justified and would fail at that stage of the test. Hmm. We then go through these other questions. So we ask whether the law is rationally connected to that objective. Usually the answer is yes. And, th and then we really get to the meat of the matter, which is whether the law is minimally impairing. So we're basically asking not in a overly strict way, but whether there are other ways the government could achieve the same objective without limiting the right or freedom to the extent that it has. And again, um, courts are, are somewhat deferential and there are some good reasons for that, but sometimes they can be a little bit too deferential in my opinion, where it's clear that there are other options available and situations such as COVID demonstrate this because we have different uh, provinces pursuing different uh, approaches. Uh, to these situations and, yeah. and some have are able to achieve similar objectives through less rights impairing means and then the last stage is we ask about is proportionality and and again here i think often the, the focus is is a little bit too skewed towards perhaps uh the state uh my old professor at osgood hall professor jamie cameron has suggested that uh that this might be the case and that actually what we need in those situations is uh, to, to really recognize that this stage of the Section 1 test is the last chance for rights claimants to avail themselves of their constitutional entitlements. And so the focus there needs to be on the adverse impact on the rights rather than strictly on the benefits that the state says will come about as a result of those rights and freedoms being limited. So, Chris, as you're talking through that process and through the steps and the tests as you've gone through, for me, what comes to mind is the issue of time. So mm -hmm. time is, is obviously all of that happens over a certain period of time. And if you have a government, and I'm not suggesting one thing or the other about current governments at all, this is just mm -hmm. hypothetical. If you have a government that seems to, let's say, operate outside the boundaries or really push gray areas as much as they can in, in whatever, self-interest you want to call it. Mm -hmm. And then you have our system, which is set up to justify and to test whether it's justifiable, time seems to potentially become an issue at that point because it seems like a government could get away with actions for a certain amount of time, potentially, before mm -hmm. there's actual um, answers or response that's, or conclusions, I should say, that are drawn. Mm -hmm. How much time, typically, COVID's expanded times for a lot of people, how much time can pass in that? I know it can be a long time. And is there ways around that potential problem of people having to put up with the consequences of bad, or their freedoms being unjustifiably messed with, and then they have to wait potentially months or years for conclusion? Do you have any comments on that? Yeah. So, so really what you're getting at, David, is we're, we're moving a little bit outside of the realm of, of constitutional law. Yeah. We're getting into what we in law call civil procedure, where we're talking about uh, the process of litigation itself. And, and civil procedure often relates to this, uh, this ideal that we have called access to justice. And so we want to ensure that the courts remain uh, a forum in which claimants can access justice meaningfully and as you are alluding to, uh, in a time sensitive sort of way. So one thing that charter claimants can do when they are bringing a claim is to seek 
uh, an injunction. And, and basically, when you have what are called temporary or, or interim injunctions, uh, you have a court that is making an order before a final determination is made. Yeah. So that might be in a case where a claimant says this uh, law is having an adverse impact on me uh, to such an extent that the law should actually be suspended either wholesale or just in my case for the duration uh, of the litigation until a decision is made. That, in general, the test for injunctions, whether that's in cases involving the government or whether it's in cases involving uh, private parties, it is a fairly strict test and it is a hard test to meet. And, and there are good reasons for that, but that can create these challenges uh, in charter litigation where individuals have to, uh, if, if in the end courts decide uh, rule that uh, their charter rights and freedoms are being unjustifiably limited, they may have to live with that until they get that ruling in hand. Yeah. So that's that's the first issue. Um, but but the other issue, of course, as well, is that when we're dealing with things like covid, uh, these are often uh, time bound measures. And sometimes by the time you actually get to court or sometimes you have a decision come out, uh, the the law in is no longer in effect. Yeah. And so really what you're getting at that point is simply a declaration, uh, a retroactive declaration about whether the law was or was not unconstitutional. And we had a panel at this uh, last year at Runnymede's National Conference in March in Toronto, where we had uh, some lawyers from various uh, civil, li civil liberty organizations talking about this. And this is one thing that they discussed was this, this challenge that we face where uh, the declaration isn't necessarily going to be as meaningful for the people who are seeking to have their rights and freedoms vindicated. So that is definitely a, a challenge that we face particularly in these kind of, um, you know, emergency sure. situations that are time bound. And there even, there is growing views with polarization of the charter. And you can see that even with how certain provinces have been, provincial leaders maybe have been speaking or talking. Um, mm -hmm. For example, you look at issues that has happened with Quebec in the past in regards to how the constitution works across all provinces and their agreement together. You've had, not that this has happened yet, but with uh, Alberta's most recent premier, um, Danielle Smith, and she's made comments about fortifying Alberta and Alberta strong type of thing. And she hasn't threatened to leave. I know there's lots of growing dissent that way, but there's just this growing um, appetite to almost away from how the constitution brings all the provinces and territories together. What are your views on that? Is that dangerous for our country, those type of views? Or do you think it's healthy to promote Obviously, provincial strength is a, is a good thing, but not outside the context. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, our constitution, our original constitution from 1867 lays out a division of powers between the provinces and the federal government. And so we need to ensure that those uh, that division of powers is respected and is protected. Of course, uh, there, there are certain circumstances in which uh, both levels of government might have jurisdiction over certain issues. We, we call those double aspect issues. And in certain exceptional cases, uh, the federal government can use what's called the peace order and good government power uh, to legislate in a way for the benefit of, of all of Canada. Yeah. But I, I think it is important that at a, as a starting point that we perhaps uh, the exception rather than the rules so that we ensure that uh, the provinces are able to act within their jurisdiction. There is a reason uh, that our constitutional framers created Canada as a federation because we have different regional interests and we recognize that there was value uh, from a subsidiarity perspective in yeah. ensuring that that each uh, level of government has jurisdiction over certain 
matters. But what I don't think helps the situation, David, is where we have uh, certain provinces, and, and we've seen this, you mentioned Quebec and Alberta, and they are probably at, at the moment uh, the two biggest offenders that are essentially uh, proposing to uh, unilaterally amend uh, the Constitution. I, I think, again, this comes back to promoting a healthier constitutional culture, and I'm just going to keep beating that drum because yeah. that's, I, I really think, what uh, is, is at the core of a lot of the problems that we face right now. In order to promote a, uh, a healthier conversation, what, what can the, our audience who's watching and listening to everything you're saying right now, um, how would you encourage them to do that? And, and why should they care? If you can, what are your thoughts? I think for, for members of your audience, David, who are, aren't necessarily trained lawyers or, or haven't gone to law school, I think it's really great if they want to educate themselves about the law uh, and, and about what it does. And there are a number of groups out there that offer public resources um, uh, for uh, non-legally uh, trained Canadians who want to know more about this. So okay. uh, one group which just put out an ebook that I contributed to uh, is the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And they put out a book called uh, Freedom Through Federalism, which talks about the ways in which our uh, division of powers, our federal structure can actually serve to safeguard the rights and freedoms of Canadians. Other groups such as the Canadian Civil Liberties Association also do uh, public engagement. And so they have educational resources that, that talk about uh, what the, the Constitution is, what the Charter is, and, and what the, our rights and freedoms protect. But, but really the key, I think, is to have, uh, to read widely when we're reading and to read a plurality of views, because obviously these can be controversial issues. And so it's, it's very important to make sure that we're not just listening uh, to one singular voice that's trying to tell us what the Constitution is. We need to be thinking about this critically. And that means every time we hear a perspective offered, we need to uh, we need to be willing to interrogate that. Yeah. Uh, and that cuts both ways. And that's a big part about uh, what Meet Society does, the organization that I work for, is that in, in law schools, we create an opportunity for students and scholars to look at the received wisdom, which has prevailed in the legal academy and profession, yeah. and to, to question that, not in a belligerent sort of way, but in a way that really is, is in keeping with the, the mission of higher education, the mission of the university, and to, to interrogate that and unpack that. But but for, for people who, again, aren't in that environment, I would say read widely and, and be, be critical of what you're hearing and, and recognize you know, that there are some voices out there that are trying to push an agenda. So it's always very important to be aware of what that agenda is. So Christopher, I'm, I'm interested to know your thoughts on the Honorable Brian Peckford right now and for a while since January 2022, he's been traveling around uh, talking about um, Section 1 because he was a part of 1982 and the writings of it. And he is basically advocating that it is not being used properly or as originally intended. Mm -hmm. Two questions for you. Question one is, do you agree with him? Question two is, do you think that this is positive or good discourse to have mm. regarding our charter here? So in answer to your first question, uh, obviously, as we've discussed, I think there are problems with how we think about Section 1. I'm, I'm not sure uh, that I would agree fully with, with Mr. Peckford's views. I think it's fair to say that his views on Section 1 are, are fairly extreme. That doesn't mean that they shouldn't be taken uh, seriously, but uh, my own opinion probably wouldn't uh, be where, where he's at. I think we yeah. need to uh, move away from, again, an absolutist conception of Section 1, which focuses just on limitations and also focuses on how Section 1 can serve to uh, protect and strengthen our rights and freedoms. Um, but in answer to your question about whether what he's doing is healthy or not, I mean, certainly 
I, I believe in free expression and, and it's important to listen to those who were at the constitutional table in 1982. I, I think the danger here though, David, is that uh, we do need to be careful when we're listening to those individual voices, because when we're interpreting law and we're interpreting constitutional law in particular, what the framers, the individual framers subjectively may or may not have thought is a very fraught basis on which to interpret the Constitution. Because, of course, there were numerous uh, parties that came to the table and they had different objectives. They had different uh, agendas. And so Mr. Peckford may have felt that this was what Section 1 was intended to do. That may not have been true for all of the other people at the table. The same goes for other sections of the Charter. You often hear this discussed in the context of, of Section 33. And usually people focus on, on specific voices when they're talking about the original purpose of Section 33. Often uh, former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien is quoted in talking about it being used very rarely. And generally the, the um, the better basis, the sounder basis, is to look at what the Constitution actually says. And it doesn't mean we read it formalistically. We have to be alive, not just to the context of the, you know, the surrounding sections of the specific section that we're looking at. So we need to read the Constitution as a whole, not just the Charter, the whole Constitution. We also have to be mindful of constitutional history. This is something my colleague, uh, Professor Ryan Alfred at Lakehead University has talked about, and he wrote this excellent book two years ago called Seven Absolute Rights, where he uh, essentially charted the impulse of Canadian constitutionalism from Magna Carta in the 13th century all the way to the present. And so yeah. we need to be aware of that history, but it needs to be done in a way that uses the constitutional text as the starting point and then builds out from there. But, you know, going back to your question, you know, looking at what individual framers may or may not have, have thought uh, can be a little bit of a fraught basis when we're doing this task of constitutional interpretation. Well, Chris, I've really appreciated our chat. I wish we had more time to keep going because this is an incredibly deep conversation and there's a lot of ways we can take it. How, if our audience wants to follow you and find out more about what you're doing, learn more about all the things you're passionate about, tell them how they can keep in touch with you. Absolutely. So the best way uh, to keep uh, tabs on, on what I'm up to is on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Kay Kinsinger. And so I post most of my uh, articles and, and things that I'm doing there. As you mentioned, I am a contributor with the National Post. And so every few months I, uh, I write op-eds for the Post. And recently I've been doing a series of videos unpacking some of the legal issues that have arisen uh, during the inquiry by the Public Order Emergency Commission into the federal government's invocation of the Emergencies Act. So that's the best way to, to keep in touch with what I'm doing. And of course, show up to Runnymede Society events. A lot of our events and our conferences are open to the public, and I'd love to see you there. That's awesome. Oh, Christopher Kinsinger, audience, go check him out. He's got a great mind and keep up with all that's happening. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate chatting. I hope we can do this again soon. I do too, David. Thanks for having me on. You are an essential part of this series. Support truth, knowledge, and wisdom by sharing this show with a friend. Visit returntoreason.tv. There you can subscribe to my newsletter by clicking Become an Insider. Get the latest articles, episodes, and exclusive content. You'll be the first to know about fascinating conversations I've had recently and what my research team is working on. If you have a suggestion for the show or would like the reference material for this episode, use the link in the show notes. Experience Return to Reason. Get involved.